Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Welcome back to Retire Smarter, another great podcast on the way today to help you get a little bit sharper, a little bit smarter when it comes to your financial and retirement future. Walter Storholt here alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you throughout Northeast Ohio. And Kevin, we've got another great show on the docket today. How have you been, sir? Walter, I'm great. We're uh, recording on a Monday morning, and uh, I've been uh, up and at it for several hours now, and I feel great. So I'm looking forward to it today. I'm actually on my uh, eighth straight day of a 5 a.m. wake-up call and getting to work nice and early, and it's it's becoming a habit. What do they say you have to do things for... Is it three weeks or a full month yeah, before it becomes 21 a 21 days or yeah, until the next book that comes out and says 28 or right, whatever. Right. At least a couple of weeks worth. So I'm getting there. I'm getting close to making a habit. And let me tell you what, the productivity level between, you know, depending on what time I get to work or start working, but, you know, let's say 6 to about 930 when everybody else is kind of starting to email and get busy. Those are some very productive hours. So. Yeah, everybody's different. Um, you know, my sister, who's very productive in her own right, uh, is definitely more of a nighttime person. Uh, I, <laughs> in high school, I, I don't. I was kind of on speed dial for my principal for probably a few reasons, but one of them was I just couldn't get up and get it to school on time. Uh, and now, in forty three, it's completely flip flop. So I've been up and at it, up since three, at it since four. Uh, but uh, that's that's normal. So when my kids get older, I go, I go to bed. I put my kids to bed, and I go to bed. And uh, but as my kids get older and stay up later, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to uh, fix this. My wife was making fun of me this morning. She's like, yeah, "You're going to have to do something different." As the kids get older, their friends are going to come around and probably ask. Say, oh, do you have a dad? And oh, yeah, he just goes to sleep at 7 p.m. every night. <laughs> I had some friends like that growing up. I remember where we, you know, might be doing a sleepover or something like that, and one of the parents would disappear at seven o'clock, and it was like, oh, what happened to your mom or your dad? Like, oh, they're in bed already. It's like, what? <laughs> That's really, really early. Yeah, it's funny how things change. It is. It certainly is. Well, speaking of how things change, we have seen some big changes uh, when it comes to retirement plans and in particular, IRA owners. If you have an IRA, this will be a very good episode for you to listen to today, especially if you are thinking about the next generation and how that generation will inherit possibly those funds inside of an IRA, or even if you are someone who will be inheriting money from an IRA, you're going to be impacted by some of these changes. To set the background, Kevin, there was this conversation about the SECURE Act. We've touched on it on a couple of episodes briefly. Um, It was kind of this thing that had been passed through the House, and we were waiting for it to get approved by the Senate and signed into law. We didn't really think that would happen until 2020, but right before the end of 2019, boom, it all got signed and went into effect at the beginning of of this year. Now, there are lots of changes in this thing called the SECURE Act, but we're going to cover just some of the key changes, again, particularly for IRA owners on today's show. What other background do we need to know before we jump into the key changes here? I guess when I think about what's happened over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of a lot of changes over the last couple of years. So at the end of 2017, we had the Tax Cuts and Job Act, which was uh, tax reform for short, uh, but it was the biggest tax reform bill since uh, the late 80s. Uh, So, you know, 30 years. And now a little bit more, well, actually almost exactly two years later, 
passed at the end of two, very end of 2019, uh, we had uh, this Secure Act, which it was attached to a spending bill and passed. And the Secure Act itself, uh, we talked about this on episode 25 in uh, July 2019, that it was one of the few things that uh, both sides of the aisle actually agreed on. In principle, they did not want uh, retirement planning accounts, uh, IRA accounts, 401ks, 403bs, 457s, what have you, just kind of use those synonymously and call them retirement accounts. They did not want those to be estate planning vehicles. And it seemed to be a matter of time. Personally, I thought it was gonna be part of the, the tax reform passed in 2017 but uh, it was attached to the spending bill and is now the law of the land as of 2020. So we've had a lot of changes over the last couple of years. Uh, so a lot of uh, things that we'll talk about today, there's a lot in the bill, but I'm just going to kind of home in on really, I think, who is most impacted, particularly for those that are, you know, our clients and, and people that are tuning into uh, the Retire Smarter podcast. Uh, so we're not going to go over every single part of the SECURE Act and, and the new law, but we're really just going to talk about those, uh, I think, somewhat significant changes or at least some things that people should be mindful of. But then we're going to spend the majority of the time today and really talk about uh, the IRA distribution rules and the fact that the stretch IRA is no more. So that was something that we talked about uh, last July. I predicted that you know Congress was going to pass this uh, again. It was, I think, in the House 417 to 3, uh, 417 yays, 3 nays. This seemed pretty inevitable, and here is the inevitability One in of the few bipartisan things to you know go through these days, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, something, <laughs> well, we just wrapped up the impeachment trial. Some things about that were sort of predictable, uh, but I digress. Uh, but yes, uh, predicting Congress is, um, is somewhat predictable in some ways today. So... Um, but anyway, as it pertains to IRAs, we're going to just talk about really uh, what what those changes were and uh, somewhat of the paradoxical implications of the name Secure Act, because some people are probably going to be feeling a little less secure. Uh, but it, so I'll just dive right into these what I see are the key changes. So the IRA contribution age limit has been removed. Uh, so what this means is making a traditional IRA contribution. And you know, we have traditional IRAs and we have Roth IRAs. Those are kind of the two big umbrellas of uh, IRAs, if you will. But the traditional IRAs, uh, previously, you couldn't contribute to them uh, after you reached age 70 and a half. You could, however, contribute to a Roth IRA or if you were still working and in, were a participant in the 401k plan in a company that, that you didn't own or only own a very small percentage of, you could actually put money into the 401k as well. So basically, this law change, frankly, just treats the traditional IRAs the same way that it treats the 401ks and the Roth IRAs. If you're still working, if you have some income, if you have some consulting income, if your spouse has sufficient income, then you can go ahead and make a traditional IRA contribution and there's certain levels where you can deduct it or not. Uh, so again, I don't think this is exactly that big of a deal, but um, we've had some cases over the years where it's made sense if somebody could go ahead and put money into a pre-tax account to just go ahead and control their taxes. Maybe there was um, like a Medicare income adjustment threshold that they needed to just be under. And if they could put money into like a pre-tax account and get a deduction for it, then they could avoid, you know, save a thousand to five thousand dollars on their Medicare premium. So little things like that could come into play. Um, for most people though, most of our clients, uh, it, it's kind of a, 
again, it's kind of a mood issue. Um, so they retire and then, yeah, they have some income, but guess what? You know, when you're in retirement, uh, even if you're working a little bit and say doing some consulting, you still need some income to go ahead and spend money. So that tends to be the first thing that you spend. You spend what you earned. So while this is somewhat of a significant change, uh, again, it really just equalizes traditional IRAs and treats them the same as Roth IRAs or 401k plans. So not a huge deal on that first bullet point. At least nothing really negative comes out of that change or that impact for folks. A slight positive bump overall? Slight positive, yes. Well well uh, positioned there, Walter. So uh, in a similar vein, uh, item number two is that required minimum distributions, or RMDs for short, now start at age 72. So prior law was that they started at age 70 and a half. And uh, technically- We got rid of the half, all right. <laughs> we got rid of the half, <laughs> yes. So it's basically, we got a year and a half extra there. Uh, I'll talk about some numbers, but I think you can kind of plainly see. Sure, that helps. Um, some of the reasons are people are living longer, people are working longer. As the secure name implies, they they want people to be more secure in their retirement. So they're gonna say, hey, let's, let's go ahead and push this back another year and a half, and you can get an additional year and a half of tax deferral and and there you go so one of the things that's important to know here so anytime you have a law there's a cutoff date and um, for anybody that started their RMDs in 2019 so you think about this if you turn 70 and a half in 2000 late 2019 uh, and you say okay great you know so what happens to me well because it's 72 now well um, you're out of luck or SOL, uh, as some may say, uh, because you have to continue to take your required distributions. Um, so anybody that is 70 and a half as of 2020 is who the law applies to. So if you started your required distributions or had to start them in 2019, uh, you have to keep with that program. Uh, if, however, you turn 70 and a half uh, in 2020, uh, then you are under the new law and have to start at age 72. So not a, uh, in my net positive, uh, that's another slight bump in the positive direction, I would say, if I'm keeping score at home? For sure. And, you yeah. know, it's a slight bump. And those we always talk about the years from when you retire up until RMDs start as being some of the years where you have maximum tax planning flexibility. We did a few episodes on that in uh, December of 2019 uh, and just talked about that. Um, and so we're going to add to that band of years, if you will, certainly uh, just on the surface of it, it does not hurt. It's a slight positive. Uh, however, if you can actually use those years productively, um, then it could be even more beneficial. So I'll give you a quick example here. So what does that really mean? Uh, so suppose that you had uh, a $500,000 IRA balance and you're starting at age 70 and a half. Well, your first year RMD would be about 18,000. And if you start at age 72, uh, so you've had some continued growth, then you know your account's gonna continue to grow. So again, we're kind of assuming like a 6% growth rate on the IRA, just purely hypothetical, but your RMD is gonna be a little bit larger. So it's gonna be in this example, about 22,000, so 18 to 22. Uh, and you may be saying, well, hey, it's it's bigger. That's more of an RMD. Uh, yeah, but again, you have a bigger year-end account balance too. So if I take that example all the way out through age 85, the ending account balances are 
562 versus 606,000. Uh, so again, that's a 6% per year and uh, of a growth rate and taking out the required distributions in under the old law at 70 and a half and under the new law at 72. So you're going to get a little bit more tax deferred growth. This example, I think, is in a vacuum. It's it's accurate. It's relevant. In practicality, though, I mean, people, you know, when if you need to use and spend your IRA money, it's really inconsequential. If you don't need the IRA money, uh, say you have enough pension income or Social Security uh, or other income sources that, hey, the IRA is really just going to be kind of excessive, uh, at least the required distributions are, then certainly that gives you some more flexibility another year or two of tax planning and then additional tax deferred growth, which you know could be a good thing. So slightly positive, but I would say even even more so than the first one that we started with particularly if you're able to be thoughtful, creative, and and use the most out of the additional year to year and a half. It's a great improvement just for the flexibility. That's the positive nature of it. Not that you're going to necessarily, it's not really down to the dollars. It's just, hey, it gives me flexibility to make better choices and have more time to make such choices. Flexibility is always great. Yeah. You know, you can't predict the future. And in estate planning, we'll get into that a little bit here with the third and, and most impactful change of the SECURE Act. Uh, but you can't predict what the tax rates are necessarily going to be in the future or the estate tax or how much money you're going to have for that manner. So so when you're doing estate planning, having flexibility is particularly key, but even having more flexibility in the short term certainly helps as well. But, you know, you got some things you're looking at on probably like a year or two basis, you know, your cash flow, creating your retirement income, doing tax planning. Uh, you have some things that are a little bit longer term, you know, hey, your retirement planning. Hey, can I afford to spend this much? Am I going to run out of money? How much risk do I have to take? What kind of return do I need? What is my estate plan looking like? And then, you know, all this stuff kind of uh, goes together in the middle as well. But uh, very important point in that regard. So, and I'll say this as an aside, I mean, you're what I'm hearing. Uh, some people talk about the Secure Act. Yes, it's a significant change. Yes, some people are going to be impacted. Some people are going to be quite negatively impacted, uh, particularly by this third provision. Some people are going to be positively impacted as well for some changes that we're really not going to be talking about today that aren't so applicable to our clients or uh, people that are tuning into the Retire Smarter podcast. However, I've heard a lot of people just come out and like, hey, the sky is falling, Congress is screwing you, and you got to act now to go ahead and hire me to go ahead and save you. Or you're starting, I'm starting to see this. We'll, we'll talk about, um, we talked about this in July last year when we first spoke about the Secure Act, but uh, there's going to be a very legitimate use of life insurance for certain people uh, with certain risks, tax risks uh, that are more magnified uh, under these new laws in the Secure Act. And it's more of like kind of a fear-based uh, tactic, in my opinion, to go ahead and try to make a sale. Everybody's different. You know, there's some people that are more negatively impacted. Some people are going to be more positively impacted. But you, you kind of got to look at this and understand it. And if you don't, uh, this does get fairly technical. I mean, you're integrating investments, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate. I mean, that's <laughs> those are those are all pretty deep disciplines in and of their own right. Let alone when you're integrating them together, the complexity increases quite rapidly. But you know, you just kind of got to look at it, and you got to go through a process. And if you don't have the understanding, uh, then work with a fiduciary advisor to go ahead and walk you through that. Who is competent in those areas, or who can bring that? interdisciplinary knowledge and assimilate it and just show you like, look, here's 
here's the risk or the opportunity that you have or you don't, you know, and if you do have that risk, you know, here are some of the preventative things that we can do to make your situation better, which is probably a nice segue into the third bullet point that we'll spend the rest of the our time on today. Sound good, Walter? Sad violin. We are laying the stretch IRA to rest in point number three, right? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe not go. so sad violin. It's a, <laughs> it's a celebration of life. <laughs> um, so it's not a celebration. I, I'm, I'm the little technical um, detail and is kind of going off in the back of my mind, and I'll, I'll see if I can make that point later without confusing people. But um, so the elimination of the stretch IRA is now dead. Let me say this first of all, is we have some clients that have stretch IRAs or inherited IRAs, you know, their their mom or their dad passed and they had some IRA money and now our clients inherited that money. And what happens is each year based on their life expectancy, they have to take a certain amount out of the account and it increases each year, uh, but they can continue to get that tax deferral for, you know, over the life expectancy. Um, so it could be several decades. So if you have an inherited IRA currently, it doesn't go away. Um, and again, uh, it's only for inherited IRAs in 2020 and thereafter. So that's kind of the first point. So, but this prior law, as I explained, it allowed you to take the money over your life expectancy. So now that is that is gone. If I'm the inheritor and say that I'm in my 40s and um, mom or dad pass away and leave me IRA money, I start out taking about 2% of the account balance out per year and it kind of slowly increases over time. But because I'm only 40, I, there's more than 40 years in my remaining life expectancy per the IRS tables. So I can really get the benefit over a multitude of decades of tax deferral, tax deferred growth, spreading out the income tax burden, all that good stuff. So that is gone. That that part is dead. Uh, subject to the new law is, well, hey, it just has to be out over 10 years. So that's kind of the new rule. And, and I should point out what's very important is this is for what they call non-spouse beneficiaries or non-spouse designated beneficiaries. These little technical terms matter. Um, if you're a spouse, old law and new law are the same. That's very important. The spousal rollover uh, is very compelling, um, basically. So husband passes and the wife survives him. Uh, she can roll his IRA over into her IRA and just treat it as her own. So that's called the spousal rollover. That was under prior law. That's still here today under a new law in 2020 and moving forward. But it's for your children. It's for these non-spouse beneficiaries. And it has to be designated. Designated, and if it's if somebody's not designated, basically, if you screw up, and uh, this unfortunately this happens more than what we would like to see. Uh, certainly, does not happen for our clients, but um, sometimes people reach out to us uh, and and have an issue like this. But usually, if I go back to that example, husband and wife, they name each other as primary beneficiary, but they don't name anybody as contingent. So husband passes, wife goes ahead and rolls over his IRA to hers, but she he's no longer there, so he's not he can't be primary beneficiary anymore. Um, she never named the kids; uh, they just for whatever reason they didn't, and now there's nobody named. So there's nobody that's designated. So when I say designated beneficiary, that's what I mean. They have to be named on the beneficiary form, and then it just goes to the estate. And there's some different distribution rules there. Uh, that we're not going to get into. It's it's a little bit more technical, but so you have uh, mom and dad are now both gone, and let's say we have an example, and you just have one child. Uh, so that that child that who is in this example going to be a designated beneficiary has 
under the new law, 10 years to distribute the IRA. So rather than, in my example before, taking out like 2% per year or 3% per year, say if you're around age 50, uh, now you have to take it out over the 10-year period um, following the year of death. The difference in, in this part I like personally is you don't have to take it out equally over the 10 years. You have flexibility. You could go ahead and wait all the way until year 10. You could spread it equally. You can do it however you want. The IRS just wants it completely distributed by the end of a 10-year period. So that's the big change. So you can't stretch it out over your life expectancy. At most, you got 10 years, at least on surface. We'll talk about maybe some planning uh, that you can do where you can get a little bit more than the 10 years, but uh, at least that's how the law is written. So let me just put a, a quick recap on this. So spouses are the same, still do the spousal rollover. It's really the children, these designated non-spouse beneficiaries where it's different. So at most you have 10 years, and however, you don't have to take it out each year following the year of death. It just all has to be distributed by the end of 10 years. So kind of like in, in point number one about the uh, or number two, where the RMDs and that age increased to 72 from 70 and a half, we gained some time. We gained some flexibility with the stretch IRA being eliminated. It's going the other direction. We're now losing time to make decisions and to make those withdrawals. So it's putting us just on a, a real crunch of a timeline here. Yes. Um, and so, so it kind of begs the question of, well, who's really going to be most impacted by this? And it, it, it's probably fairly straightforward to see. But, you know, the larger the IRA is, you know, the, the worse off that your beneficiaries are going to be. Um, so if you use, say, I'm, I'm a big fan of round numbers, particularly on a podcast format, let's just say it's a million dollars. Under the old rules, let's say somebody who was 50 was inheriting. Well, they would have to take out round numbers about 3% or $30,000 per year. So if they just went ahead and said, okay, you know, under new laws, I got up to 10 years. If I just did equal distributions each year, that's all right, Walter, I haven't asked you a question. I got a million bucks. If I'm going to take equal distributions over 10 years, ignoring growth, how much am I taking out per year? Man, I got this one. Uh, 100,000. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Let's get a little applause in the background. I had actually already done the math in my head before you even thought of asking the questions. Walter, I knew you. I had complete, <laughs> utter confidence and faith in you. Good job, Walter. I love what we're doing this on the Monday morning uh, for both of us. Uh, so you can see 30 grand versus 100 grand. A big, big difference, right? Substantial difference. And because of the way that our tax system works. Yeah. You know, why, higher... why is that a big difference? I mean, I understand that the pure dollars is 70,000 more dollars in the one example, but what, you know, I can then just put that money into some sort of different savings. I mean, I don't have to go and then spend that money. It's just moved out of one account to another. So what's the big tax deal in that difference? It's just because of the way that our tax system works, our income tax system. So it's progressive. So the higher the income goes, the higher the tax rate goes. Uh, so again, if we kind of go back to some of the things that we talked about in the fourth quarter last year that go into having a tax smart distribution plan and understanding how to do tax planning in general, it, this is kind of the key thing. Um, it's, you know, what is your marginal tax rate? So the, a lot of times the example that I'll give is when you go from taxable income, I'll just use round numbers, round numbers of about uh, $80,000. Uh, you're paying a 12% tax rate, but you go over that 80 um, by $1, then the additional dollar or your marginal dollar uh, is at a 22% tax rate. So you go from 12 all the way up to 22. That's a pretty big increase. And so think about it. If you're, you know, if, say if you're 50, 
and if I go back under prior law, I inherited a million dollar IRA from uh, from mom and dad. Thank you very much, much appreciated. I have to take out thirty thousand per year. Well, I'm in my fifties. I'm probably at my peak earning years, and so that thirty thousand dollars is going to sit on top of the income that's already hitting my tax return. Uh, if I'm a one income family, I have one income going through the tax return. If I'm a two income family, husband and wife both working, um, then I have two incomes going through that tax return, and then the RMD sitting on top of that income. And so very quickly, you can see how those income thresholds can get higher and higher and the tax rates higher and higher too. Uh, so if it's rather than 30,000 new law, 100,000, again, assuming that we're spreading it equally over 10 years in the example, uh, well, you're more likely not going to be pushed up into a higher bracket. So the larger the IRA uh, and the fewer the beneficiaries, the more is likely to go to Uncle Sam than to your kids. And that's kind of the long and short of it right there. I will say this as a quick aside, and, and we've talked about this in the past too, but um, with tax reform in 2017, so that is uh, applying to tax years 2018 through 2025, that's current law. And then um, for some technical reasons, the laws go back to what they were in 2017. So when I, we look at tax rates from now through 2025, one of the interesting things is that there's you're only paying a 22 or 24% rate up to about 300 I think it's $324,000 of taxable income. Um, so you can have a lot of income and still pay a fairly low at least compared to historical standards a fairly low income tax rate 22 or 24. If we go back to 2017, you're hitting a 25% tax rate at about $75,000 of taxable income. So not only are the rates a little bit lower, but the brackets, particularly that range that I just talked about, is incredibly wider um, for a lot of people. So, so when I'm hearing some of these um, kind of fear mongers out there talking about what this is going to mean, you know, frankly, for somebody that's pro that may pass away over the next few years, it might not be so bad. Um, again, I mean, you got lower rates, you got longer, excuse me, wider brackets, uh, so it doesn't look too bad. However, <laughs> we get to 2026, it looks a lot worse, and so the rates are going to progressively get higher more quickly, and the rates are higher on an absolute basis as well. So, uh, Walter, you know, we don't have, um, I don't know, what's the uh, the psychic hotline uh, we can call and maybe find out exactly when so-and-so is going to pass away and how much exactly was we're going to inherit. Miss Chloe, was that the... Miss Chloe, yes, <laughs> something like that. But it gets back to the idea of flexibility, uh, and we just don't know these things. And so um, there's certain things that we can do. There's certain periods of time where we have more flexibility, that we can do some more planning, both before as well as after death, um, which we'll talk about. But it's not an immediate concern. Uh, if somebody was, I'll say this, if somebody was unfortunately on their deathbed and they had an IRA and then it was going to be inherited, I don't think there's any kind of uh, immediate planning that somebody may need to do, generally speaking, again, because the rates are going to be lower uh, for the next several years, uh, barring some sort of um, change to current law. But we don't know when we're going to inherit money. We don't know exactly how much it's going to be. And more likely than not, the rates are going to be higher come 2026. And potentially they're going to be even higher than what they're scheduled to revert to. This is always kind of a, you know, a moving target, if you will. So, so it, it depends. Is is unfortunately the right answer if you're going to be better or worse off um, in that example that we gave. But 
one of the things that's for sure, because there are these lower tax rates for the next several years, it does create some planning flexibility, particularly what we kind of call it pre-mortem and then post-mortem planning. These are kind of the two buckets, if you will, where we get down into some strategies about what we should do. So, uh, Walter, you everything I say so far clear as mud. Should we recap anything or should we get into some of the, you know, here's what you need to do um, kind of pre as well as post-mortem? No, I think it's clear. And I think that the helpful thing to know here is that, like you said, in the news, it seems like this very urgent thing that needs to be planned for and solved for immediately. But you've you've kind of shown that the ground has already been laid to actually help those who are going to be passing money down essentially immediately or over the uh, you know immediate future of one to two years. You're already in lower tax brackets than we've been in in decades, and so that's a good thing. So it's not that bad that you're then going to be forced to take the money out over these lower tax bracketed times. But the big deal is five, six, seven years from now, if that's when the transfer of money happens and tax rates have gone back up, therein lies the big problem and the lost opportunity maybe for folks. Am I tracking okay? You got it. It okay. could be a problem um, for sure. And again, kind of the two, the two variables here, the larger your IRA and then the fewer beneficiaries. I mean, if you have a million dollar IRA, but you have 10 kids. You know, probably, and each of them gets 10 years. Yeah, it's going to get diffused a, a little bit quickly, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, if you have a $3 million IRA uh, and have one beneficiary, um, much, much bigger problem. The biggest IRA personally I've ever seen, and this is a complete unicorn. Uh, this is not indicative of our regular clients, but um, this, and I may have mentioned it in passing, but the guy has $13 million in his IRA. Wow. And uh, he worked for a company um, <laughs> really kind of, eschewed uh, just common investment, you know, prudence and, and practicality and, and only owned his company stock in his 401k plan. And coincidentally, uh, and very luckily for him, it happened to be one of the, the best performing stocks over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years. And so it's just kind of shot the moon. But for, we have several clients that have, you know, multi-million dollar RAs. When I say multi, you know, typically, because there's limits to what you can put into these plans every year. So you put money into the plan, but you know, this year, if you're under age 50, it's 19.5. Uh, you can do another $6,500 if you're 50 or better. Your employer puts in some contributions, uh, and these amounts increase slowly over time with inflation. But there's a limit, really, to what you can have in here. Actually, I, I take that back. I remember when Mitt Romney was running for president, and uh, this was really unique. But part of the press, I think this is interesting, um, but I'm a finance guy, so I'll throw that <laughs> caution out in the wind. Um, he had, at the time, $26 million in his IRA. And so what he did, uh, he worked for Bain Capital, and because he was uh, a partner, um, he elected to have his stock in the company uh, in his 401k plan. There was just something unique that he was able to do at the time. And um, frankly, it was it was really the wrong thing to do um, because the required distributions on his account balance are just going to be astronomical. He would have been much better owning his, his company stock outside, but he owned it, I believe, like in what's called an ESOP plan. And uh, there's a lot of negative press like, oh, can you believe it? He's got all this money. And and I saw that. I was like, wow, he's going to be paying a lot, a lot in taxes <laughs> or he's going to be giving a lot to charity and um, and he's probably going to be doing both. But um but I digress. Um, so if you have, you know, if you have uh, $500,000 in your IRA and you're going to be living on this money in retirement and it's maybe going to be getting drawn down over time and you have a couple kids uh, that are going to inherit whatever left when you're gone, again, probably not a big risk. Um, but, you know, we have a client 
currently uh, is unfortunately not in great health. Um, his IRA balance is north of $2 million, and uh, he has two kids that are going to be beneficiaries. And um, rest assured, we are going to be doing some planning for them um, that we're going to be taking a really hard look about what changes do we need to make in light of this CURE Act not being here anymore. But some of the things, I think, thankfully, I mean, if you've been tuning in to the podcast, if you're a client, a lot of the things that we've been doing just as good planning uh, for years already made sense and alleviated some of the risk of, um, you know, the stretch IRA being removed. So again, into the pre-mortem or before death category, certainly you need to start. And as with anything, you kind of need to look at your plan. You need uh, that longer term plan, you know, take a look, make the projections, you know, here's how much I currently have in my IRAs. Here's how much I have in my Roth. Here's how much I have, you know, in say my trust account. Here's my spending. Here's my income sources. You know, looking, you know, here's some assumed rates of return for the investments. And when I get, you know, further out down the road, looking at life expectancy, again, we're kind of getting into estate planning here, but really how much risk am I going to have? How much am I likely to have in my IRA account? You know, if it's going to continue to get whittled down through the required distributions that I'm going to have to take and, Maybe I'm spending at a fairly healthy clip relative to how much an assets that I have. Then again, the tax risk is kind of going to be mitigated over time naturally. Now again, we don't know exactly when we're going to pass, but you know, when you have two spouses, then you don't have to worry about everything necessarily when the first death occurs. So you need to start with that plan first and foremost. You really need to kind of take a look at this. I had a call just last week with a client. Their attorney, they relocated to um, outside of Ohio uh, and retired in Arizona. And uh, they had a, a good proactive attorney from what I can tell and said, hey, there's been these law changes. We should take a, a relook at your beneficiaries and your state plan. And a client called me. I said, you know, hey, Bob, completely agree with that. That's great that the attorney did this. However, because I know the details of your plan, you know, we've been doing uh, a few things already in your plan that have mitigated some of the risk. Uh, and they had money and IRAs, pretty sizable balance, low seven-figure balance. Uh, but they had a good chunk in the Roth IRAs too. And the way that they had gotten that is each year we're doing kind of small conversions, kind of partial Roth IRA conversions, looking at the current tax rate that we can convert at. And, and as long as it's likely to be less than what their tax rate is going to be in the future, well, that's a good trade. If we can pay lower taxes today, then let's go ahead and pay the tax now, get it over into the Roth IRA and let it be tax-free forever. So we've been doing that for them for many, many years now. Uh, they've got a good chunk in the Roth IRAs. They're going to continue to take out the required distributions and their IRA is going to continue to get kind of winnowed down over time. Uh, the other thing I said, hey, Bob, you know, when you look at your investment account too, and we have a client vault, clients can log in uh, anytime that they want. They always get to see, you know, hey, what do I own? How's it been doing? Um, what's my financial plan? Uh, how's that look like? Uh, basically, it's updated you know, on demand every single day, uh, which is, I think is pretty nice. But I said, hey, log in here, take a look. And and for Bob uh, and his wife, they had a little bit less than 60% in stocks. I said, you know, when you look at the stocks, I said, all those stocks are already placed into your Roth account as well as into your trust account. And uh, there's some tax reasons for that. But we what we call that is kind of uh, asset location or asset placement. So first we figure out what we want to own. And then we figure out, well, tax-wise, where does it make sense to own it? So for Bob uh, and his wife, we put all the all the bonds, um, all the interest-bearing, tax-inefficient assets in his IRAs. 
We knew we didn't want to take more risk than what we were already taking. We were comfortable with the level of risk that we were taking. Their financial plan was going to work. They were going to be able to sleep at night. And then, uh, so that was good. And so we kind of checked the box with the allocation and, and what worked for them. And then when we, when we got into the location aspect, we said, well, hey, let's put all those bonds in the IRA. We want the slower growth, more tax inefficient assets there. We'll put the higher growth, the highest growth assets in the Roth because, hey, that's tax free. That's long term money. Let's, it's probably going to be leave on money for our kids. Let's put what we think is going to do the best over the next 10, 20, 30 years there to maximize those favorable attributes. And then in the trust account for them, uh, typically you want to own very tax efficient U.S. equities first. And then there's kind of a hierarchy that you go through. But uh, when you looked at just those two things that we were doing for them, uh, both the partial Roth conversions as well as the asset location, that really mitigates some of the tax risk long-term in their plan. Said another way, it helps them maximize you know, their wealth on an after-tax basis. So this is something that we've been doing for a decade already uh, for them. And I looked at it and I said, you know, Bob, your attorney's exactly right here. But when you look at this, you know, he, with everything that we've already done over the last 10 years and, hey, we're going to keep doing this. And when I look at your, your quick projections, like long-term, you know, hey, you got two kids, there's a husband and wife, there's some other post-mortem planning that we'll be able to do and we'll talk about here in a moment. But I just don't really see the risk being that significant right now to you guys. So, you know, just let the attorney know, say thank you. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and hold off, uh, but I'll come in and see you maybe later this year. But um, we're going to basically update their numbers um, and just kind of walk them through that a little bit more than just talking to them on the phone and connecting the dots for them. So, so those are, I guess, two of the primary things. It's just good planning while you're living, but it also helps mitigate the risk of uh, you know larger IRA owners and kind of having this accelerated distribution and not being able to stretch out the IRAs any longer. It's uh, definitely gets more complex the more you kind of walk through all of those different little moving parts. But I guess that's why, you know, once you get to the detail of, okay, this does impact me, that's the good news is, okay, it gets complicated from there. But at least it's relatively simple to see whether, okay, I'm going to be having major impacts by this or not depending on my situation. And then it gets more, uh, you know, more intuitive or uh, maybe less intuitive and more, um, you know, detailed from there. And that's where we work with you and figure out uh, the best moving parts for our situation. And also you mentioned the flexibility because things could change five or six years down the line or when the new tax rates come into effect after the current ones run out, maybe they don't pop up as much as we thought or somehow in some way go down. I don't think anybody's predicting that to be the case, but you never know. That's the whole point of this, right? There's some flexibility that we need to maintain throughout the process. Completely. And again, I mean, you know, this is what we do every day and I've been doing this for quite some time. And I'm very comfortable with all this. So I'm fully cognizant that I can rattle this off and it may feel like somebody's drinking from a fire hose right now. And that's certainly not my intent. And if you, if anybody, it's almost like, you know, if, if you ever tried to read your trust uh, or the trust is usually even worse than just reading your will, but all this legalese, um, I mean, it just gets incredibly confusing quite quickly. But here, again, we're kind of looking at, uh, we have to understand taxes. We have to have a very robust retirement plan that reflects our lifestyle as well as kind of projecting it forward at some reasonable rate of return uh, and how our assets are going to grow into the future. And then understanding you know, the estate and distribution aspects of it and integrating all this stuff together. It's 
you know, 10 years ago, I probably would not sound nearly as informed as I do now um, because we've been doing this for so long. So it's, I get it that uh, it can get complex pretty quickly, but at the same time, that's why I try to really distill this down to, Hey, here's the key provisions of the act. Here's who's most impacted. And again, the larger the IRA and the fewer beneficiaries, the more risk that you have. But again, I think, Quite importantly, um, I mentioned this somewhat uh, earlier, but because tax rates are lower right now, if you're not already doing these partial Roth conversions, if you're not already doing this asset location, uh, particularly the partial Roth conversions over the next several years, taxes are in sale right now, you know, by and large, they're lower. Um, the current law is that they're gonna go higher. So whether or not you've already started doing this sort of planning, the time, <laughs> frankly, the time to act is now. So those fear mongers that I mentioned earlier, um, I don't think you have to be, I'm not trying to be uh, in a similar vein, but um, you look at it, hey, taxes are lower now. One of the key strategies that can go ahead and help maximize your wealth while you're living on an after-tax basis are these partial Roth conversions. And oh, by the way, it also helps mitigate the tax risk for the estate planning now that you can't stretch the IRA out any longer. If you're not doing it, no time like the present to start doing it. And then what we're gonna be doing for our clients throughout this year is just kind of relooking at this and say, well, hey, in light of the change, do we need to be more aggressive? And and for some clients, like uh, the gentleman that I mentioned, you know, who's not doing all that well health-wise, has a pretty significant IRA balance, um, likely going to pass in the not-too-distant future and a lot of money going to his two kids, then yes, I fully expect for in that case, we're going to be doing something different, probably being a lot more aggressive with some of the Roth conversions and some other things that, that we'll want to consider. So everybody's different, um, but if this does feel like, hey, I'm taking a drink from a fire hose right now, Re-listen to it. You know, give us a call uh, if you're working with an advisor. You know, talk to them. Make sure that they are well versed in those areas, though. Again, income tax, estate planning, as well as investing, and can really pull it all together and connect the dots for you. That's really, you know. I don't know how to make it any simpler than that, unfortunately, but that's just what you have to do. Walter, before we wrap up, I should, let me at least briefly mention uh, some of the post-mortem planning. So everything that we talked about now for those people that are impacted and really how to evaluate the risk that you have as well as some of the opportunities has been more on the kind of the pre-mortem planning or before death. Um, however, you know, post-death, there's definitely some planning you can do too. Um, so let me give you kind of a quick example so assume husband and wife, um, and husband passes again. And so we mentioned that the spousal rollover is still there. However, let's say that the spouse is, say the wife is uh, 90 years old or 80, let's say 85 years old. And you look at it and we know what she's spending. We know that, hey, there's going to be a fair amount of money that's left on for the kids. So maybe we don't need to roll all of this over into her IRA and do that full spousal rollover. So one of the things that we could do is look to potentially disclaim some of the IRA assets and, and have those go down to the kids. Uh, so if we just think of, uh, again, round number example, let's say there's uh, we had husband passed away, wife, 85, and now we have a daughter who is, say, 60. So we look at mom's plan and we say, hey, you know, you really don't need uh, all million dollars rolled over from dad's IRA. Uh, let's just go ahead and roll over half of it. Certainly we would have done some calculations and updating of the financial plan to kind of bear this out, but just for discussion purposes, uh, we'll disclaim the other half. And so the other half, again, provided that the daughter is the contingent beneficiary on the IRA, the other half goes to her. So she gets the 500,000 
She gets to spread that over, over 10 years. Say mom lives another 10 years, say age 95. And let's just, again, round numbers. Let's say that, you know, she's had to take these required distributions out, but she's had some growth and her IRAs magically still $500,000. Um, so in that case, mom passes at age 95. Daughter then inherits uh, the remaining IRA and can go ahead and distribute that over 10 years. So even though there's 10 years to go ahead and take out the IRA now, uh, since the Secure Act is now the law of the land, doing that planning with a disclaiming uh, has in effect allowed her to have 20 years to go ahead and spread that tax burden. Uh, so that's one example, um, but you could have multiple kids where some kids need the money more, more quickly, maybe they're in a lower tax bracket, maybe they wanna blow it, whatever. Um, some are in a higher tax bracket. Uh, one of the examples that I have coming up here for our one client that is ill, you know, one of the, the kids is probably going to be retired in 10 years. And so uh, when we look at their planning, we may say like, hey, let's not take any out uh, until like you retire and you're going to be in a lower bracket. He's successful, has his own business, is in high tax bracket now. But that's some of the post-mortem planning you could do. So uh, again, disclaiming is one example, um, but there could be several several others uh, as well. So pre-mortem, post-mortem, both important. It all starts with a plan. You got to start there uh, and you just got to have that clarity and then you can go ahead and figure out where to go from there. Yeah, if you have a large IRA balance and someone says, well, you don't really need to worry too much about the uh, the whole SECURE Act and stretch IRA thing, that should be a red flag because it is something to be concerned with and plan for, as we've discussed over the last half hour plus. And uh, it's a great takeaway, I think, from today's show to boil it down into uh, its simplest form. But at the same time, this is uh, all parents will get this. This is not a 911 text, right? This is not a call me right now, 911 emergency, uh, you know, something is going on with the kids need to let you know. It's not necessarily to that level for most folks, but it is a, hey, let's talk about this. Uh, we need to sit down and carve out some time to discuss uh, here soon and go ahead and set that time up to meet if this is something uh, that is on your radar now after having talked about it. If you want to schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team, you can certainly do that by going to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button. Again, go to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button and schedule your 15-minute call with the team. Or you can dial the 800 number, 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-893-7526. Speaking of planning, that's going to be a little bit of what we discuss on the next edition of the Retire Smarter podcast. We're going to talk about the Retirement Smarter Solution, the planning process, what it really looks like. We're going to take a deep dive into that on the next episode of the show. Until then, Kevin, great chatting with you. Uh, have a good couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, Walter, thank you. We appreciate it. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.